0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me tonight for the first time now in uh, our Through the Bible Year. We are starting the book of Joshua, starting the book of Joshua. So Joshua chapter one, and we really do need to hurry tonight because fortunately they are short chapters compared to uh, other books that have longer chapters. But we're going to cover one through six in a single hour. Can you believe that? I don't believe it either. But we'll see what uh, what the Lord provides. This is day 85 in the Through the Bible reading program. Uh, our material to cover tonight is, in fact, Joshua chapter one through six. Uh, Ron Rhodes gave this the title of Entering Canaan, when he uh, wrote up his Day 85 devotional. Won't read that for you. You can read that on your own. Let's open the word of prayer, dedicating our time for the glory of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, once again, this is our privilege and blessing to come before you tonight. We call upon your faithfulness to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Bless our time in your word, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last night we did the introduction to this era and uh, basically gave a an introduction to the time period between the conquest and the kingdom. Uh, the conquest we get started with here in the book of Joshua, and then they settle into their inheritance through the book of Judges, and then uh, we get introduced to their first king, uh, that is, with the ministry of the prophet Samuel and the introduction to Saul. Uh, once we get to King Saul, then we'll actually get on into era number four. So that's going to be 20 classes from tonight. We have a total of 20 classes to cover uh, the material that we're going to have here. So let's take a look at it in Joshua chapter one. It came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. So now it's time to go. I mean, for 40 years they've been anticipating this. They left Egypt 40 years prior, and of that whole generation, only Caleb and Joshua are the last two that are still alive at this point. Also remember as we studied on Tuesday night with the death of Moses that Moses had gone up by himself to the mountain and so uh, Joshua doesn't know until the Lord comes to him and says all right Moses is dead and uh it's time to uh it's time to begin so this is what we see here all right reading from the uh, the outline then the notes that we have The Lord directs Joshua to be strong and courageous and to lead Israel to the victories that the Lord has promised. And that's what we're dealing with with these first nine verses of the chapter. The extent of the promised land is from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates as is described here in verses 1 through 4. We didn't quite read verse 4 yet. From the wilderness in this Lebanon even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. And this is a, a description fairly similar to what we're already accustomed to, a slight difference maybe. Uh, the, the original Abrahamic land grant was from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The uh, the western sea being the Mediterranean has always been the the western boundary. The eastern boundary has in different descriptions been undefined or defined in terms of the Jordan River when the actual survey was given for the conquest and the tribal divisions. Uh, but really it's a larger boundary than that when it comes to the total land grant that, uh, that God indeed promised to Abraham. So we'll look at that some more. We will see it will reach its greatest extent when we get to the time of Solomon. And uh, even then it's still not the totality of what was promised to Abraham. Uh, Let's look at the other uh, verses here. Uh, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So be strong and courageous. You shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Really, the conquest is dependent upon their spiritual prosperity. It's dependent upon their obedience to the will of God, their adherence to the, to the law, their, uh, being careful to do all that God calls for them to do. The military aspect of it is almost, um, secondary. I mean, it really is. It, it's the spiritual obedience comes first. It's like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You can, you can adapt that for this message here to Joshua. Uh, you know, keep your eyes fixed on the Lord, do what He tells you to do, and the victory is guaranteed. God will provide the victory. He is the one that fights before you. Alright, so have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? That gets us down through verse 9. So, as far as the land grant goes, you can see the description there in Joshua one four. You can go back and compare it to the land grant promised to Abraham in Genesis fifteen, and even to this day, twenty twenty two, right, twenty twenty two A.D., um, Israel has never had the totality of the of the territory that was promised to Abraham. So that remains yet future in the uh, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Three times Joshua is commanded to be strong and courageous as the Lord will be with Joshua. So, you know, Star Wars might have the very famous may the force be with you, but Joshua has the Lord be with you. And all he has to do is stay humble, stay obedient, walk with the Lord, and the victory is there. All right, then verses 10 through 18. As Joshua accepts his command and takes action with the officers under his command. So Joshua is now going to turn and extend the same commands to his officers as we see it here, preparing Israel for immediate deployment. Looking at verses 10 and 11. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves for within three days you were to cross this Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. So he has his commandments from the Lord. He's now giving commands to his officers and uh, the preparations are underway. He warns Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh to fulfill their oaths to Moses. You remember the the tribes that were uh, given a sanction, given uh, a dispensation to have land east of the Jordan instead of west of the Jordan. Moses at first w- said no, but then uh, then he said, "All right, so long as you cross the river and engage in the combat operations. Once the uh, the western uh, territory is conquered, then you can return to your tribes and to the lands that you're you're desiring there." So we have the details there in verses 12 through 18. If you want to go back and remind yourself of what we studied, that was in Numbers chapter 32 when uh, when they made that original request. So the answer, Joshua, saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses and all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Moses, anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death only be strong and very courageous. That's actually a pretty noteworthy declaration on the part of uh, Reuben Gad and half Manasseh. All right. well that's chapter 1 how about that? We might make it. Chapter 2 Rahab shelters spies. Alright, so here's a very well known story and i think we're familiar with it but we need to go through and get the details on this i uh, remember he told the armies we're marching within 3 days and now he's dispatching uh some advance scouts some uh some reconnaissance team uh, to go in and and check out their first target so um and it is kind of nice kind of a poetic uh thing for the next generation now since joshua was one of two faithful spies now he's he's not sending out 12 spies Yeah, I think maybe he's learning from that example. He's sending out two spies, all right? And so these two can be faithful and uh, don't bother sending out the ten faithless, just send out two. And uh, anyway, it makes me laugh. Um, But here's Joshua, one of the two faithful spies, and he's now sending out two faithful spies of his own to the city of Jericho. And uh, they're going to spend the night where they uh, spend the night in Rahab's brothel whatever else you want to call it. I think it's pretty blunt the way it's described here. So Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and they lodged there and i mean it is what it is and um there was different forms of prostitution in the ancient world including temple prostitution was probably the most common of all the the sacred prostitution the religious uh, prostitution that took place in the fertility cults of the of the uh idolatrous practices but really it does not seem to be that that's what the situation was here this appears to be more of a of a secular variety at least that's how i read it and uh, the house itself was a place of lodging because they did lodge there. And uh, some of the supplies that were up on the roof that they're hiding among, um, I don't know, uh, different opinions on that regarding whether it was actually a temple or not a temple. It's never called a temple, though. It is called the Harless House, is what it's called. And so um, I'll just take it at face value and call it that. Also, by the way, I think there's a lot of squeamish. Um, evangelical viewpoints that that are much more uh, comfortable calling Rahab the the former harlot or the you know before she got saved that's what she did kind of and, it, and and honestly you're just you're reading into the text things that aren't there okay the text doesn't call her a former harlot it doesn't say that's what she did back before she got saved this says this is what she's doing now this is her occupation and this is her house and this is what's going on okay and uh, it is what it is. So, um, anyway, she is. it is the house of the woman of uh, fornication. It is a baith Isha Zona. And the verb Zona is very well known to us. It's the verb for harlotry. It's the verb for unmarital, non-marital sexual activity, which is always uh, harlotry. So she's not a, a sacred prostitute. She's not a Kadesha. You know, um, the, the sacred prostitute, she's the secular prostitute. The porne in the Greek uh, rendered uh, in the Septuagint and rendered in the New Testament. James chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 11, they both speak to Rahab the porne. The house's position on the city wall may have motivated the spy's tactical decision to spend the night there. I'm going to give these spies the benefit of the doubt. They chose a house that had a high point uh, of egress, that had a window that whereby, by which they could escape the city if they needed to escape in, uh, in a hurry. And Which of course we find out by the end of the chapter that's how they do escape when the gate is sealed. Uh, they selected their uh, escape route accurately. and So giving them the benefit of the doubt, I'm not saying they were motivated to go to the, to the whorehouse for any other reasons than that. Alright, Rahab's divine destiny as a believer and the ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ certainly dictated the Lord's sovereign direction for the spies to spend the night there. I find that powerful. Whatever reason they had for going there, God had his reasons for sending them there. And, uh, once we know the end of the story, we understand that Rahab herself is in the line of Christ. That, uh, you know, according to, to the tradition, she marries one of these two spies. And, uh, and then she becomes the mother of, of Boaz for all that matter. And we'll have more to say about Boaz when we get to the book of Ruth. So, anyway, um, kind of fun to see how it all comes together. But she is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse by some poor girl that doesn't have her name mentioned here in the Bible. <laughs> All right. And then Jesse is the father of David, again, by a woman we don't know, Mrs. Jesse, uh, as far as that goes. So Rahab uh, hides the two spies on her roof as an expression of faith. As we read it here in these verses... So uh, they come to spy out the land, they, they stay in the house of a harlot and they lodge there and it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So uh, however undercover they were, their cover was blown very quickly upon uh, upon their arrival. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring the men out who have come to you who have entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. And uh, it's pretty obvious who they're referring to, and, uh, but she's going to defend them. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them and said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went out. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. This is a bold-faced lie. She, has, she knows who they are. She knows why they're there. She knows exactly where they are because she hid them in the place where she hid them. But now she's flat out lying to uh, to the messengers of the king. She had actually brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. That also doesn't seem to be a temple function to have flax on the roof like that. But anyway, so the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out they shut the gate. So they're off in the hot pursuit but of course it's a Wild Goose chase, um, they're up on the roof. Anyway, Rahab understood. It's kind of curious. Um, I haven't read the rest of this. We'll get to verses eight through 13 here in a moment. We're going to get the words out of her mouth, but understand the divine commentary for this comes in Hebrews. Hebrews 11:31 says, "By faith, Rahab, by faith, what she did she did as a faith expression, which means she's already a believer. She's already functioning in faith. An unbeliever cannot function in faith. Okay, She's not an unbeliever waiting to hear the gospel to get saved. She already has an awareness of God consciousness. She has an awareness of who Yahweh is as the God of Israel. It's remarkable uh, the background that she has here. She understood Yahweh's intention to destroy the Canaanites. She says that in verse 9. So before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. This is a tremendous testimony here as to who Yahweh is, what he intends to do and how all of these pagans are are terrified. We have heard how Yahweh, the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That was 40 years ago. But she's she's fully aware of this. Before you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings and the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you have utterly destroyed. That was much more recently, okay? When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your Elohim, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father 's household and give me a pledge of truth, all right, so she 's making a request for physical salvation for a physical rescue. She already has the spiritual salvation she 's already testifying by faith to her uh, to her faith in Yahweh. Rahab understood that the Lord had removed the canaanites' demonic empowerment we 'll get to that. Um, when we see some of the, the angelic forces that go before the human forces in the combat operations. But God had promised that that he said that their protection has been removed from them that's in Numbers 14.9. Their protection has been removed from them. All of the demonic empowerment, all of the, the, uh, the, energi- uh, the energizing power that they had through their you know Nephilim forefathers, uh, all that's been swept away part of the advanced operations of the Lord before Israel marched across the river. The Lord's example of Egypt in the previous generation, Sihon and Og in this generation accomplished what he intended, the demonic and human fear of the Lord's wrath. Remember it's not just human beings that are scared, the demons believe and tremble. The demons have a a trembling knowing that that, uh, their conquest is going to send them to, to the abyss. So Rahab places herself in the Lord's care according to his grace. If you're in a city that's about to be destroyed, what else can you do? Just call upon the Lord. And that's what she's doing. So we see in verses 2 through 7, the king of Jericho demanding Rahab turn over the spies, but her stratagem, do you like that word? Her stratagem, if you don't like that word, then the one in parentheses is her lie. Okay, But stratagem is a better word. Because the Bible says, thou shalt not lie, right? Lying is a sin. She's not sinning. We already read Hebrews 11. She's doing what she's doing in faith. Her stratagem sent the king's guards looking elsewhere. She sent them off on a wild goose chase, okay? Definition for you, stratagem, an artifice or a trick in war for deceiving and outwitting the enemy. You know, and this is true in athletics. This is, you have, you know, misdirection plays. You have trick plays in baseball. You've got misdirection plays in football, in any sport. You know, you got, there's tactical movements. And if your enemy thinks you're doing something else while you're doing what you're really doing, that's great, you know. And in combat, it's vital. It could be the difference between winning and losing. And uh, you want to misdirect the enemy as, as frequently as you can. So outwitting the enemy the commandments must be placed in proper setting and not related to God's laws for warfare and espionage. Understand, when you read the Ten Commandments and you read, thou shalt not murder, uh, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery, when, you, when you're reading all through these laws of divine establishment, I mean these commands in the Decalogue, understand the setting for that is not the laws of warfare and espionage. Okay? Different settings altogether. It's like the people who try to <clears throat> try to take Jesus' message on turn the other cheek as if somehow that sanction for uh, pacifist uh, in foreign national policy that no that no military no uh, nation should have a standing military or whatever we should just turn the other cheek and allow our nation to be conquered. You're you're abusing the text at that point. Okay, don't take the turn the other cheek passage and put it into a military context. Same thing here with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Taking human life in the prosecution of righteous warfare does not violate the sixth commandment. Are we clear on that? Did David violate thou shalt not murder when he killed Goliath? Taking human life in the prosecution of righteous warfare does not violate the the sixth commandment. Warfare is not murder. When you're serving your nation, when you're serving your king, when you're defending your nation, that's not murder. Different word anyway between murder and, and killing. How about taking plunder in the aftermath of righteous warfare? It does not violate the seventh commandment. You're not stealing. You're, you're salvaging, right? I mean, the, the former owners don't need it anymore. They're dead. You've conquered these people. You're plundering their, their, uh, their booty. Marrying the captive women in the aftermath of righteous warfare does not violate the eighth commandment. It's not adultery, all right. In fact, it's very much regulated and stipulated that if you see a captive and she looks good to you and you want to take her, you can take her. But just under principles of Mosaic law, that means you are marrying her. You are providing for her for the rest of her life. You are having children with her in, uh, in this way. It's not uh, these aren't sex slaves. This isn't the raping of of uh, of, a, of a defeated enemy. This is th- what God has structured in His law for His covenant nation in uh, in these activities. And then finally, strategic lying in the course of warfare and espionage does not violate the ninth commandment. And so she's not; she doesn't have to go to the Lord in prayer and confess the lie that she told to the king. All right, she uh, because she did that in faith, and she's going to get written into Hebrews eleven because of that. And, and she's going to get uh, placed in the line of Christ in, of, uh, of all things. So it's uh, the issue there. All right. The spies coordinate the signal for Rahab's deliverance and they return to Joshua with a good report. So she makes them swear, swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. Notice she's not just out, she's not just looking after herself. She actually has an older father. She's actually under her father's household, which I'm not sure how that, you know, what her dad thinks about her occupation, but, you know, (laughs) we'll see. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This could have been a hundred people. This could have been, I mean, we don't know how many people this is. How big was her father's house? How many brothers? How many sisters? What are their families, families like? So the men said to her, our life for yours. So this is part of the oath. And when she says, swear by Yahweh, that's, that's fearsome. I mean, we saw already what Yahweh holds men to their vows. And they're going to make an oath in the name of Yahweh? I think it's brilliant on her part actually to phrase it this way. So the men said to her, our life for yours, I think that's the nefesh, soul life there, yep, our life for yours instead of you to die if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when Yahweh gives us this land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And so they spell it out. That yes, they will agree to her terms but she has to She can't rat them out. She's got to to keep the secret. So she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. Is that coincidence? Or did they already scout that out ahead of time? And did the Lord already scout that out ahead of time for them? So she said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear. Unless, when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother, your brother and all your father's household. So the whole clan's got to be brought into the, the, uh, the brothel, okay? Not sure what her mother and her sisters think about that, but That's going to be the place of safety. That's going to be the way of escape. That's going to be the refuge, the the ark, if you will. And the cord, what's the symbolism of the cord? The red cord, okay? And it's uh, this scarlet thread, and even the word for thread is uh, a fun word study. Oh, I'd love to stop and do, let's spend a month on this. No, we can't. Tonight we're going to get through chapter six. I'm still in chapter two? Oh my goodness. All right. Anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be free. Anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. So she said, according to your words, so shall, uh, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I mean really the scarlet cord is almost like Passover, right? With the, the smearing of the blood, the application of the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. She has to have that cord in place. So they departed, came to the hill country, remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had sought them along the road but had not found them. So they returned, came down from the hill country, crossed over came to Joshua the son of Nun, they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. What a good report, okay? The good report as it's given here. The two spies and a faithful report, just like Caleb and Joshua had, uh, had given. So God had promised to put fear into the heart of the people. The spies testified of the Lord's faithfulness. The people can then have confidence in the Lord's other promises regarding the conquest. He said He was going to terrify them. Lo and behold, they're terrified. He said they were going to conquer the city. Take them at His word. God is faithful. This is what God's going to do. And uh, that's what's going to happen. All right. But it doesn't happen in chapter 3. Although Judah typically leads the march of Israel, in this case the ark has to go first. The ark of the covenant will go first to part the river. And uh, we'll see that here in verses 1 through 6. So Joshua rose early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan and they lodged there before they crossed. And at the end of three days the officers went through the midst of the camp. This, by the way, is also useful for us too because the way Hebrew uses on the third day, the way the Hebrews use, the, remember they were three days going up to the hill country and then coming to cross. It's the same time frame, okay? It sounds awkward for us the way we track time. Uh, they were, they were fine with being gone for three days, coming back on the third day. For as far as Joshua and, and those folks were concerned, they weren't, uh, it's still been the three days that uh, Joshua has warned his troops to get ready. The command of the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place to go after it. But there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you shall go for you have not passed this way before. All right. so don't get too close. Your life is in your hands if you get too close to the ark. So Joshua spoke to the priest saying, take up the ark of the covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the ark and went ahead of the people. And this is the first of the miracles as we see. God will give Israel a visual testimony to Joshua's rightful succession of Moses. I mean, pretty visual, pretty obvious. Moses parted the Red Sea and now the Jordan River is going to have this water miracle. All right. So the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall command, uh, yeah, the crossing of the Jordan reminds us of the crossing of the Red Sea and you've got uh, the text here, the text in chapter 4 and then of course if you want to go back to Exodus 14 you can see the, uh, the details there. All right. So, uh, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. You're going to have to preach this, you are going to explain it. Not only are they going to see it, but they're going to hear the message that goes with it. By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now keep in mind, this is one special occasion this is by the direction of the Lord. This is not to be repeated. This is not uh, a magic talisman. This is not hocus pocus. Uh, you know, later on they're going to try. They're going to think that you know, just putting the ark out in front of you guarantees a victory, and they're going to learn the hard way that it's not. That's not how it works. You got to do what God says when God says. This is a, a one-time deal here. So the ark is going first, now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above, that would be from the north, will stand in one heap. They're going to pile up in a heap because you know there's more water still coming from further north. So they get heaped up. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, the feet of the priest carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam. Okay? Okay? Not the man, the the town. There's a town called Adam. And it's further up north. Um, Again, you can right-click it. Select Adam the place. Pull it up in an atlas. And as it zooms in, there it is. You can see Adam on the map. And really right where this river flows into the Jordan... There's this stream here, I forget what it's called, there's a river here that comes down past Sukkoth and it hits the uh, the Jordan River right there at Adam. All right, The city that is beside Zarethan and those who were flowing down uh, toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. How long does it take for a nation to cross a river? Okay, and this too is is part of what goes into the considerations. Is you know, are we talking six million human beings? Are we talking what are we talking about related to the nation? They did keep three, two and a half of the tribes, the women and children and old people. Uh, they're not crossing, but still you have a significant number of people that are crossing. Anyway, just like the Red Sea crossing, all one event. While the waters to the north continue to be heaped until uh, the nation gets across and then the, the water can be unheaped. But before they do that, though, they're going to put, a, gonna put a, a memorial in there. The Lord directs Joshua to erect a memorial pillar to the Jordan crossing. And uh, this now gets us into chapter 4. When all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe. Command them saying, Take up for yourself twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he'd appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you, you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever." And this is what they're going to do. They're going to follow those instructions. He also erects a pillar of his own in the midst of the Jordan River. So not only does he do what he was told to do, he has a little extra thing he throws in there as well. So um, the sons of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. They took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. They are there to this day. So they took 12 stones from the river, took them out, put them on the campsite. They took 12 other stones, I think, is how I'm reading this, and put them in the riverbed where the dry ground uh, is. Anyway, I suppose they might be found someday by uh, underwater archaeologists. You know, but we do the same thing. I think when I was a kid and we had an unpaved church parking lot for years and years, finally they they decided to pave the parking lot after, you know, 10, 15 years of having an unpaved lot. That was our opportunity to bury little mementos and and other little things to write notes. You know, Bob was here and put a note under there and, and, uh, like it'll ever be found someday because it was paved over with asphalt and whatever. And then when we built this building too, before the sheetrock went up on these walls. There were the, the uh, steel uh, girders that are in there and the walls and, and some, uh, some graffiti that was written by my children uh, on the, the steel behind these walls right here. And uh, I forget, I think they signed their names or I don't even remember what they wrote. But anyway, you can ask them, they'll tell you. All right, so obedience plus more. The crossing of the Jordan River occurred on the tenth day of the first month. Does that tell you anything? Could be a problem. Uh, As we get down here, description of those equipped for war. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so they revered him as they revered Moses. And remember, of every person that walked through the Jordan River, none of them had walked through the Red Sea. All right? Or if they did, they were under 20 years of age. Okay? Only Caleb and Joshua. All right, verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And uh, those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal he said to the sons of Israel, and again, you can pull this up on the map. I think I left my map up and running still. I did just type in Gilgal. There we go. Right there in the neighborhood of Jericho. I mean, practically spitting distance right there. Okay. But he said to uh, the sons of Israel, now of course the monument is there as a sign but what else do we know with the fact that it's the 10th day of the first month? Is that ringing any bells? Were you paying attention to um, the Passover instructions? Okay, On the 10th day of the first month, that's the day you've got to select the Passover lamb. And you keep that lamb for four days, and you kill that lamb on the 14th day. They're crossing over at Passover. What, what terrible timing. What bad luck. Okay? No, God sovereignly picked this day. God sovereignly said, we're going to, uh, it's time to go. And Joshua, Joshua gave him three days, I think, so that he could get across the river before the 10th day. Anyway, so it's time to have Passover. This is the day the Passover lamb is to be set aside according to Exodus 12.3. Israel is going to observe the Passover here at Gilgal and it gets spelled out for us in chapter 5. But before they can take Passover they've got another problem to deal with. A little, um, I think, some, um, some uh, disobedience, some lackadaisical quasi-obedience, some slackers in their obedience for the recent years. Let's see what happens here with a circumcision event and a Passover event. Do you think, uh, you know, I mean, you think they crossed the river and went and sacked Jericho the very same day? No. In fact, they're going to have to spend a week just marching around and singing and praying and all the, all the parade festivities that are having before they do any of that. They've got to take care of business. They've got to make sure they're spiritually, ritually clean and prepared and, and equipped. So this is why we have chapter 5. The, the walls of Jericho don't come tumbling down until chapter 6. I know we, y- y'all want to sing the song tonight, but we'll, we'll get there. It's going to be in chapter 6 though, not chapter 5. So um, we see the reaction by the demoniac Canaanites. Canaanites came about when all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. So their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them. What kind of spirit were they having before this event? Does this mean that they surrendered their human spirit? No. If they're not saved they don't even have a living human spirit anyway. I think that they were demonized. I think they had spirits. At that time the Lord said to Joshua make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is not typically, you wouldn't think of this as a a prime battle preparation. Remember the men at Shechem when they wanted to marry Dinah? And the brothers said, well, you know, we'll give her to you if, you're, if you circumcise your men. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And by doing that, what, what ended up happening? They left themselves incapacitated and, and vulnerable and, and Levi and Simeon went in and massacred the whole lot of them. So if, in earthly terms, this is about the last thing you want to do on the eve of battle. But in spiritual terms, my question is, why, why weren't they circumcised all along? Why weren't they getting circumcised on the eighth day of their life? Were they just not practicing it in the, uh, in the wilderness? They had a national circumcision? All right. Why has that been neglected this whole time? I want to know. And you can ask me if you want on question and answer, and I'll tell you, I don't know. I want to, I want to, that's one of my questions when I get to heaven. Why weren't they doing it throughout the whole 40 years? So Israel cannot proceed with the conquest until they obey the Lord's instructions regarding circumcision. And so we see here um, Joshua circumcised them, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised but the people who were born in the wilderness along the way, they had not been circumcised. Well, that seems dumb, why not? For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord remember the Kadesh Barnea rebellion, to whom the Lord had sworn that He would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom He raised up in their place Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. I tell you, it's so much easier if you just stay obedient all the way along instead of having to make up for 40 years of non-circumcision in one fell swoop. And when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. How long did that take? Okay. And I think it's also remarkable that the, the people of Jericho were so terrified, they just stayed there quivering behind their walls in Jericho. They didn't know how vulnerable Israel was at the moment. Anyway, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. So time to rest up there anyway. (laughs) So yeah, they can have the, the circumcision recovery and observe Passover and all the details there just fall into place. Great timing. I think God knows what he's doing. not exactly related, but it is statistically significant, perhaps, that uh, March Madness is the time of year in the United States of America where uh, the most number of vasectomies are are performed. Year-round. This is the season. That's right. And uh, just so men can hang out on the couch and watch March Madness. (laughs) And uh, it's just, I don't know, hilarious to me. All right. So um, they're going to observe Passover, they're going to have the circumcision, uh, they're going to learn the significance of the name Gilgal. Gilgal, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt uh, from a verb that means to roll. So this is the, the roll away. Troubles roll away now. Israel observed the Passover for the 42nd time overall. If you're tracking, by the way, from the night they left Egypt to the the year uh, that they camped at at, um, at, uh, Sinai and then 40 years. Anyway, this is now the 42nd time. The provision of manna ended at this time. Ooh, here's something significant. They observed Passover and on the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so the sons of Israel no longer had manna but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Very significant. The Lord said you're in the promised land now. There's crops here that uh, they're, they're for you. The Canaanites aren't going to be eating them. You're going to be killing the Canaanites. This this land is your land. You're going to inherit fields you didn't plant and crops you didn't plant. The uh, this is This is for you. So that's the end of the manna. The chapter closes with Joshua meeting the Lord Jesus Christ as captain of the host of the Lord. As if uh, Joshua didn't already have enough confidence for the upcoming battle, he gets to meet Jesus Christ. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? You know, his whole life he was Moses attended from his youth, from a little boy. Joshua would hear, he could eavesdrop, he could hear the voice of the Lord. He could. He knew that Moses talked to the Lord face to face. But now this is the first time Joshua himself has come face to face with the Lord. So the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is like the burning bush episode for Moses. This is, this is Joshua's burning bush equivalent episode as he's now face to face with the captain of the Lord of hosts. Okay? Or, or in the hymn that we sing, Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. This is, this is the captain of the Lord of hosts. So, the battle. Joshua chapter 6. Joshua prepared uh, themselves, Jericho prepared themselves for siege by the nation of Israel. And so they're prepared. Notice, uh, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. And uh, they've got huge walls, they've got these powerful gates, they've got food stored up. The idea of a siege is you have food and you can outlast the uh, the invading army because they have to forage for food and they have to roam and find food and and um, that's the procedure for siege warfare. They had high walls, the description's there. They had valiant warriors, description's there. The walls are pretty legendary, uh, described in 2.15. Of course that was when Rahab let her down, uh, let, let them down through the window. Chapter 6 and verse 5. The walls are going to fall flat and the people can run in. Yep, the walls fall down flat. And of course, this is what's been discovered. They fell outward, as the Lord had promised. But they also had these valiant warriors. And I'm gonna, I can't go into this. You have the verses there in your notes. Uh, the, the Geborim, or the Gevorei uh, hechayil the mighty men of, of valor. Um, these, we would think of these like, like special forces. We think of these as tremendous heroes, David and his mighty warriors. Uh, any, any man that's described this way is, is a force to be reckoned with uh, on the battlefield. And, and Jericho is packed full of them. But the Lord says to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors, some of which may very well be Nephilim. There are other Nephilim that we're going to see that are called out by name in in other cities. Anyway, the Gebor Hechayil. And uh, I've I've discussed it before. There's a long list there if you want to look those up and read those. Uh, I even made a Logos verse list. Um, The Gebor Hechayil verse list. uh, 48 passages in the Bible. Uh, I think I even shared that verse list. If not, I will share that tonight. So, uh, you can add that to your logos if you'd like. Did I share that already? I thought, yep, it's not listed there, so I probably already shared it. Yep, it's already been shared. All right. So, are the walls a problem? Are the mighty men of valor a problem? None of it's a problem. God has promised. And Jesus Christ himself, the second member of Trinity, is in this angelic manifestation as the angel of the Lord, as the captain of the Lord's hosts. And he's going to lead before them in battle. And all they've got to do is follow the instructions and there you go. March around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do this for six days. So, starting today, march around the city one time and then uh, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times how long does that take cuz i got to do seven full laps around jericho on that seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets it shall be when they make a long blast with a ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Okay. Oh, this is fun. By the way, I'm also particularly fond of the VeggieTales version of this as well. If you uh, okay, you know what I'm talking about? All right. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, and here's the instructions. The Lord tells Joshua, Joshua tells the priests, and this is what they're going to do. Okay? So, once around for 6 days, Seven times on the seventh day, that's 13 total. Most of our hymns get it wrong. Most of the gospel quartet songs get it wrong. They just talk about marching around seven times. They're forgetting about those first six days. To be technical. All right. And so this is what they do. Um, they have their instructions. The priests are going to blow the trumpet, but the people are the ones who are going to stay silent until it's time for the shout. The priestly ritual involved repetitions of the number of completion. Seven priests blowing seven trumpets for seven days with seven laps on the seventh day. I mean, how many more sevens can we pack into one one event? And then the ban. Let me get down here to verse 17. So yeah, they, uh, they get up early in the morning, they do what they're told on the first day on the second day all the way to the seventh day. But now the instructions. Verse 16 At the seventh time when the priests blow the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But now also, I think maybe you should have given this instruction six days ago. That's just me. The city shall be under the band. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Under the band. The term is cherem or cherem. Under the the ban. That means no plunder, no loot. It's not yours. Don't touch it. Don't take it. Destroy it. Burn it. Everything gets burned. It's going up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Okay? Keep yourselves from the things under the ban. You do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. All like that in Band of Brothers. That one dude kept looking for a luger the whole time, and he finally got a luger at Bastogne, and then and then he shot himself and accidentally, and dies with his own plunder. But all the silver and all the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. When the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. and The wall fell down flat. So when the people went into the city, every man straight ahead and they took the city. And I expect, of course, that most of the soldiers were up on those walls that fell down flat. Many of them likely killed in the fall itself. And then they certainly no condition to fight. So they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua told the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house, bring the woman and all that she has out there. you have sworn to her. So they did. They, uh, the spies went in, they brought out Rahab, her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had, and they brought out all the relatives, placed them outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the city with fire, all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Okay, so I misspoke earlier when I said that they burned everything. The the plunder goes to the treasury, the, uh, the people and the animals are put to death. Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. If you were with us last night we made note of that because that's, that's an indication of the, uh, the fairly contemporaneous authorship of this book not long after. you know, We don't know how young she is, how old she is, uh, but, or how many you know years that she lives after this event, but she's still alive and her household is still alive when uh, the book of Joshua is written. So Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city. Jericho with the loss of his firstborn he shall lay his foundation with the loss of his youngest son he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. All right we made it to the end of the chapter. Some of the notes now to tie this together. This oath is something else. So let's see. The plunder of Jericho was governed by the ban. That's how New American Standard puts it. Devoted in uh, other texts. Doomed to destruction. I kind of like that with the New King James. uh, Accursed in the Old King James. Designated for destruction. That's the new uh, New American Standard Bible, the the 2020 version. And that's, I think, an improvement over the ban. Designated for destruction. Or the, the Septuagint and the Vulgate actually introduced the, the term anathema, okay? Which is kind of curious on linguistic grounds, but really we don't get to anathema until church history, and we, we find the, uh, the Roman church pronounces a lot of anathemas, and many of them on us. So um, that, uh, that gets my attention. Anyway, in Hebrew it's cherem, a thing that's devoted, dedicated, utterly destroyed, the verb haram, to ban, to devote completely. Uh, it's the first appearance of this concept was revealed at Horma, in Numbers chapter 21. In fact, the town, the name of the town, uh, it comes from the same uh, Hebrew, the same uh, uh, roots, uh, radicals as, as Haram. Uh, you can see the H, the R, and the M there in Hormah that speaks to the Haram. Anyway, you might recall that from Numbers 21. The necessity for this total destruction was for the preservation of Israel's purity, Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, when he gives these instructions, um, it's, it's about holiness, it's about purity. When you're destroying these cities, utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them. Show no favor to them. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. These are going to be an exterminated people. Don't preserve them as a people by giving daughters to their sons for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That's the, uh, the issue there. All right. The Lord was entitled to the first fruits of their labor, and Jericho represents the first fruits of the conquest. That's why he gets it all. Joshua utters a curse for any man who rebuilds Jericho. And uh, spoiler alert, it happens in 1 Kings 16, uh, hundreds of years later heal the Bethelite, will experience Joshua's curse by rebuilding what had been destroyed for the glory of the Lord, and uh, he does. He loses his firstborn in the rebuilding of Jericho. Instead, it kind of remains as a locality that doesn't get rebuilt as a city, doesn't get rebuilt with walls or fortifications, but it is an inhabited locality known as the City of Palms, and uh, we'll see there'll be some residents and inhabitants there in uh, Joshua and Judges and other passages we have coming up. But it does get rebuilt with walls uh, as a fortified city in First Kings sixteen, and uh, that conquest we'll deal with that when we get there. Finally, then, the passage concludes with a reference to the fame of Joshua spreading throughout the land. He would soon conquer. You know, we're going to see, by the time Joshua retires, we're going to see he's got a, he's got a kill list of 30 kings. He's going to have a conquest list of all these cities, the ones that were burned, the ones that were leveled, the ones that were taken and and preserved. Uh, Joshua has a tremendous, um, career to his credit, but the one that he's remembered for more than any other is Jericho. That's the one the songs are written about. <laughs> they, don't read, they don't sing songs about Joshua fought the battle of Ai. Okay? It's always Jericho. And um, that's the one that's commemorated. But verse 27 says the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. His fame. Alright. Well, we did it. And they said it couldn't be done. So we will um, come back on Sunday, day 86, Joshua 7, 8, and 9, only three chapters. We can really slow down, but we need to slow down because the next city is AI, and the next city starts with a failure, and uh, we'll have to deal with that on Sunday. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together tonight. Thank you, Father, for uh, 12 completed weeks. Um, just thank You, Father. You are the faithful one. Give You the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.